This program is a presentation of UCTV for educational and non-commercial use only. Uwe Reinhardt is, he has titles, wonderful titles, James Madison Professor of Political Economy, Professor of Economics and Public Affairs at Princeton in the Woodrow Wilson School. But I think it's pretty fair to say he is America's most noted health policy economist. He's been active in the field for many, many years. Uh, he's someone with an absolutely distinguished academic record who is front and center in the policy debate related to health issues in this country. And actually, I was looking back, we haven't consulted on this, but I was looking back at a fascinating book that I had once read and even used in a class called The System by David Broder and Haynes Johnson, which is an encyclopedic account of the failure of health policy through the Hillary Clinton initiative in the first year of the Clinton administration. And Uvi is, of course, cited in that book. And he notes... Uh, the disconnect between the one-way top-down communication that seemed to be the hallmark of that initiative and the need to reach the mass public, uh, particularly through television, about these issues. And uh, he mentions that it is not clear that the general public even had the patience to digest the lengthier, excellent articles on health reform in the major dailies the public didn't get it. It was too complicated, too difficult, and the Clinton administration in its first year, still learning, uh, didn't package it in a way to build constituency support which might have turned it around. And as you know, it was defeated and it was a major initial defeat for the Clinton administration. Uh, Uvi Reinhardt has a long and distinguished record and it would take a very long time for me to review that. <coughs> um, he was born in Germany, uh, graduated from the University of Saskatchewan, Canada, where he was awarded the Governor General's Gold Medal as the most distinguished graduate of his graduating class and a recipient of a PhD in economics from Yale. His doctoral dissertation, indicating his uh, future career track, was Physician Productivity and the Demand for Health Manpower. And he's been in the field of health policy and health economics ever since. He's a recipient of honorary doctorates from the Medical College of Pennsylvania, from Mount Sinai School of Medicine, from the City University of New York, from the College of Optometry of the State University of New York. He was the recipient of the Second Century Award for Excellence in Healthcare by the Columbia University School of Nursing. And in, 19, in 2000, he was elected a senior associate of the University of Cambridge in England. He's the author of a wide variety of uh, books and articles and has served on numerous government commissions and committees, among them the National Council on Healthcare Technology, the Special Medical Advisory Group of the Veterans Administration at the time, and many others. I could go on and on. I think the key point about uh, Professor Reinhardt, uh, which is beyond all these accolades, is he has the ability to communicate clearly and effectively both to the most specialized expert academic audience 
and to the general public on very complex questions of health policy and health economics. This is a rare talent, and I think you're in for a rare treat. So please welcome Professor Uwe Reinhardt. Thank you very much. Take my water. Get out of the way. Thank you very much, Dean Nacht, for this lovely introduction. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. I want to salute the Goldmans uh, as well. You are lucky to have their name on the school. This is a smart thing to do. I teach at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. And the Robertsons, who donated the funds to build the school and endow it, for some reason wanted to remain anonymous. So it was said that the school was funded by the X Foundation, which during the 60s was not a good idea. Because <clears throat> the students thought it was CIA, and the SDS occupied the building. It was civilized the Princeton way. The dean, in fact, served donuts to the SDS, and nothing was destroyed. So that's as wild as we get. Uh, I think you're more lively out here. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, So I think it's a very smart idea to have the name on the school and uh, honor it that way. I will uh, talk today, this was actually uh, the topic, uh, Professor Scheffler and my wife communicated on this, and since she tells me absolutely everything to do, why should she not also pick the title of my talk, which she did, and I get these little manila folders and say, this is what you'll talk about, uh, manage care, who will do the managing, and when, whenever, I'm just a recent immigrant to this country. I came here in 1964. So that's not really enough time to get your arm around this complex country. I see my Canadian, fellow Canadian, David Card. I, I'm sure you have the same problem understanding what this is. It's a kind of a Disneyland without admission uh, that you <laughs> live in every day. <clears throat> and he and I both wonder how come you still cannot spell the word color correctly, uh, and so on. But whenever I'm in doubt, I go to the website, which is now good. There is a website called Universe, www.universe, and you click on it, and <clears throat> this is uh, what I did. And I wanted to know what was the world like in 1990, so I asked for an organization chart. I'm sure Dr. Steve Shortell will be fascinated by uh, this. And I got, uh, it's org, by the way, uh, <clears throat> and I got the, how the world looked in 1990. Uh, here is the universe, by the way, and this is God. Uh, <clears throat> the Pope believes God likes to be spoken to in Latin, so I put this uh, uh, in Latin. And the vice presidential level, uh, you had doctors. <clears throat> I see Dr. Lewin smile, he likes that. Uh, and then you had angels, and you had the devil. That was the vice presidential suite. And the angels whispered into the doctor's ear about the Hippocratic Oath, and the devil about capitalist stuff, <clears throat> like building heart surgery center right opposite the community hospital to gut its most profitable line, uh, stuff like that. And then beneath it you had ordinary people, insurance executives, health economists, uh, and uh, hospital executives. And that's how the world looked. And people thought this was cool, and it worked for many years. 
So I said, I want to see five years later, how did it, oh yeah, the AMA was that, they staff God, and anything that, uh, medical matters, just ring up the AMA. <laughs> so I went and so looked five years later, and the first thing I noticed, Goldman Sachs, not the same Goldman, had taken the universe public in a big IPO. It's now dot-com. Uh, still looked the same. The vice presidential level, you now had managed care at that level. You had Milliman and Robertson, who did the practice guidelines, among them kicking mothers out of bed, uh, stuff like that, <laughs> giving practice guidelines, and the devil giving truly dumb advice. And I'll, I'll show you that uh, later. And here you had doctors, hospital CEOs, nurses, and other providers. Uh, and that's how that worked. And staff to God was Professor Alan Enthoven, <laughs> who ran the whole thing. And I say, this thing is a cool website. You can look ahead. You can actually see what's going to happen. So I put in uh, an organization chart. And you notice the universe has gone digital, the whole thing. It's just interdigitated. Uh, here it is, 2005, vice presidential level. A web-enabled consumer is now in the middle with zillions of websites. And then the devil makes sure that the consumer is totally confused. And down here at the bottom, uh, it, uh, you have, again, providers and health economists, everyone down there. This, uh, this is the model. You sometimes have your professor, Jamie Robinson, writes lovingly about this model. Uh, and I'm not quite so convinced that how this will work. Uh, oh, yeah, Bill Gates <laughs> will be the staff to God. Uh, I, uh, I saw a picture of the all-American, all-digitized, all-empowered healthcare consumer of the new millennium, uh, wired to their own boutique physician, uh, and this is what they look like. So <laughs> this is the thing, the new wave uh, we're supposed to have. Well, I'll talk a little bit about this. Uh, and I <laughs> start at the bottom, of course. Uh, I want to look a little bit, at, uh, just quickly, at long-run views of health spending. Then maternalistic managed care, which is what Alan Enthoven's design was. It was to be comprehensive, roughly egalitarian, not totally, but roughly, and uh, maternalistically. Uh, I don't use paternalistic because dads usually don't do stuff like that. Uh, dads don't care, right? You have children, 14-year-olds in the basement making a ruckus. If a man is the chaperone, he'll open up the door and says, what the hell is going on, kids? The kids will say, we're making love, dad. And the father will say, oh, that's good. Don't fight. Uh, <clears throat> that's dad. So I'm, I'm talking about really good caring. And that was the Enthoven model. Uh, why did mater maternalistic managed care fail? The next new thing in uh, uh, healthcare consumerism, and then some challenges end up with a Chinese guide to thinking about the healthcare problem, which is a perpetual crisis. So let me start. What I did is download from the HICVA website how much we spent from 1965. I let it all hang out here. From 1965 to 1999, uh, spending divided by population, put it in constant dollars, and you get a line like this, where the red is the actual spending per capita in real purchasing power, 
and the blue, the black is a trend line. You need a PhD. You used to need a PhD to do this because look at this equation. But now all you need to know is to hit this button, trend line, uh, and you rendered the, my profession obsolete. But this little coefficient says that Americans are most comfortable when every year uh, we give the health sector 4.5% more purchasing power than the year before per living American man, woman, and child. Just to give you a comparison, GDP per capita over that period grew by 1.55. So this country is committed ultimately to spend 100% of the GDP on health care, king-size beds from coast to coast, two Americans with MD degrees in each bed, giving each other checkups, and then at the end of the month, they'll send each other bills, and that's the GDP. That's roughly what we're aiming uh, for. Well, you can break this into phases, as I do here. This was what is remembered fondly by physicians, uh, the golden age of medicine. Then came what one might call the gilded age of medicine, because you see we departed from the uh, uh, trend line. And then God sent down not locusts or frogs, as he did to the Egyptians, but uh, managed care. Uh, and managed care managed to bend this line down a little bit, but the force of that had spent itself by 1998, and now we're into the new paradigm, uh, and no one knows where this is going. And uh, Dick uh, Scheffler may remember at, uh, at the American Association of Health Services Research, I put this in a picture. The image it evokes in me is that this is the American health system, a huge elephant marching down the jungle path. Uh, you have down here employers beating on the legs with chopsticks, trying to move this beast one way or the other. You have here the policy wonks, uh, such as uh, Harold Luft or Steve Chartel or Dick Scheffler or myself, who try to move this elephant. And then on top of it sit the provider. Uh, this is a supply-side driven system. And here is Secretary uh, Tommy Thompson trying to lead the elephant. That's roughly how it is. Well, he's lucky. Here is uh, Bill Clinton leading the elephant. That's what happened to him. <clears throat> so this, is, this thing just marches down. And no matter what we try, it doesn't seem to work. In fact, there's a paper I wrote. This truly happened. I was, going, I was coming from Indonesia where I had been at a healthcare conference, changing suitcases to fly to Cyprus to do health reform. And my, my wife got mad at me and says, what you do is uh, basically useless. No matter what percent a nation spends on healthcare and how the system is structured, people will quetch about this system uh, <clears throat> uh, in, in unison. Number two, there will always be health reform. And number three, it will always fail. And actually, the more she was uh, with me at about 23 different countries, health reform conferences, and I think she's right. We're just condemned to this, which for health services researchers is a cool thing. Uh, there's always this school of uh, public. By the way, it's very good. You call yourself a school of public policy. That's another good thing the Goldman's did. Ours is called a school of public affairs, and I never knew what that is until Bill Clinton had this thing with Monica, and I said, now we know. Now, <clears throat> what was maternalistic managed care all about? I have to confess up front, I still think it is a good model, at least on the blueprint stage, 
And if it weren't for, I think other countries could actually make this work. We can't, but they could. Canada could make this work if they tried. The catalyst for it was the social contract we had with physicians, uh, with healthcare, even if we were properly spelled here. Uh, we thought until 1990 that only the physician and his or her patient could decide how to treat a particular illness as it was diagnosed by that particular doctor. Uh, no economic benefit cost calculus should ever enter an insurer's coverage decision. It should be based strictly on clinical efficacy as determined by that doctor, that attending doctor. Guidelines were called cookbook medicine and a communist device. Uh, and each provider should be reimbursed their usual customary and reasonable charges, which was a metaphysical challenge, because how do you reimburse somebody for their income? Because that's right, uh, it gets uh, dicey there. So that was the contract, and the footprints of this contract, this is uh, what the Congressional Budget Office forecast in June of 1993, uh, that we w in fact, it was uh, Bob Reischauer who spoke here, that's his forecast, and um, he predicted 20% of GDP would go to healthcare by the year 2000, and 28% 2010. That's one year before the first baby boomer retires, by the way. And then, as you know, the population will age rather more rapidly. So that was daunting right there. That was a problem. But the other one, these are 96 data, but they looked in 1986 the same. I just couldn't find them. Uh, these are the data put together by Jack Wenberg in the Dartmouth Atlas on Healthcare, which is on the web now. You can find it there. And after adjusting for inter-county differences in uh, demographic factors, illness, and cost of living differences, actually cost of practice differences, taking that all out, he finds, and you can look it up yourself, that in Miami, in 96, Medicare spent close to $8,000 per elderly. In age-adjusted, uh, Baton Rouge, 7700 Boston, 6000 Rochester, Minnesota, Mayo Clinic, 4,000, Minneapolis, 3,700, and Portland, 3,900. And to this day, the medical profession has not been able to explain what this represents. I have more data from Jack's Atlas. For example, the, the money spent in the last six months of life follow exactly this pattern, twice as much in the Sun Belt than in the Wheat Belt. And the challenge to the medical profession to explain this was never answered. They, my wife has a theory about this. We do a Christmas card every year, and this one was 97. For the holidays, like a totally awesome breakthrough that like totally exonerates. You can tell the ages of our kids at that time. And <clears throat> here is her theory. Uh, she says, Florida is warm and balmy, and maybe chromosomes are big down there. Uh, so if you want to scan uh, a Floridian with an MRI, you've got to do two films, upper torso and the lower. Well, in, it's cold in Minnesota, and all the min they are shriveled and flat from the wind. And you can line up three Minnesotans, one zap, you've got a film, one film, three Minnesotans. So that explains it. That's uh, her uh, work here, Jiang Zhong Mei. Is Congress really Meshuggah? Meshuggah... <laughs> A microbiological inquiry into Medicare payment policy. Meshuggah is a Chinese word. It means nuts. Uh, 
So that's, I show this slide because I challenge physician. That is the most scientific explanation of this geographic variation we have today. If there's a better one, please email me or her. <laughs> now, the other one uh, I cite here, Bob Brook, who is the national, internationally recognized guru on uh, quality uh, measurement, and they did raked over files on the appropriateness of care. This was a huge uh, survey of Medicare uh, patients, and it says here they use clinical experts to write protocols of when would you do certain interventions and when wouldn't you. And the inappropriate is where the entire panel said we wouldn't have done this operation given the symptoms in the patient's file. And there was huge numbers of inappropriate procedures. Pacemaker implantation was 22%, bypasses in the 20%. So there was a question of the appropriateness of care. And in the meantime, this wasn't then, we know there are medical error problems, mainly uh, drug administration in hospital. So there was a problem about the quality uh, of care. So that was <clears throat> there. Now, organized medicine, and I, I say this with Jack here, I'm actually not noted. I'm notorious. That's the word, because I sometimes say things that annoy people in the audience. But the truth is, and Jack probably would agree, from Chicago, the AMA, came not an ounce of understanding or a constructive idea on how to address these problems. All they did is ask for more money. And I show it to you. Here it was, uh, AMA News, 1988, Dr. Sammons, who then was the CEO of the American Medical Association. And he says here, I just told the Detroit Economic Club that since 81, this was 80, uh, speech was 88, more than 52 billion has been cut from Medicare, which again is a metaphysical challenge because Medicare spending in 1981 was 40 billion. And it is very difficult to cut 52 billion out of 40 uh, billion. Well, let me show you what really happened. I believe, uh, and correct me, uh, Steve or Harold or Dick, that looks like MedPAC. I, I somehow I wiped out the footnote. I believe it's the uh, PROPAC then called, Prospective Payment Assessment Commission. This is increases in GMP and health spending, constant dollars per Medicare and Roley or per capita, uh, 80-87. GDP, uh, about 18%. Uh, total personal health care spending, close to 30. Medicare spending on physicians in real dollars per Medicare and Rowley rose 60%. So as the nation had increased the purchasing power given to doctors per elderly by 60%, the CEO of the AMA tells the Detroit Economic Club that 52 billion have been cut from Medicare. And those of us who were around and made policy said, you gotta write off the docs. They will not come to the table. They will not participate. It's gotta be done to them or nothing will happen. And that's what the message from us to employers was, you gotta do this without the docs. You gotta uh, get somebody else. And the people, the, this attitude, I think, was not only economically troublesome, although we're rich and we can eat this, this is not that big uh, a deal. I believe it had moral consequences. And here's sort of econ 101 of a nation's soul. Uh, I'm thinking here of the number of kind acts that people, taxpayers will buy for their poor 
fellow citizens on the horizontal axis, and here the price per kind act. And this is the demand curve, and I assume this is downward sloping, that if it's cheap to be nice, you'd be nice more often. And it could very well be that God made Canadians and Americans equally kind, that is, that our demand curve would be the same for kind acts. But you've got to look at the supply curve. This is the supply of kind acts in the OECD countries. And it's cheap to be kind, and they're kind very often. And this is the American supply of kind acts, because the price is so high. So I always tell my Canadian friends, we're not any worse than you. We have the same good soul. It's just so damn expensive to be nice, so that we're, we're nice less often. And that, I think, explains quite a bit why the Congress sits on all the uninsured, and they always say, the minute we're kind, we're getting taken to the cleaners. And I think physicians have a moral duty to assure us that that won't happen, because otherwise we will not move. So getting that curve down was a moral mandate, and I believe when Alan Enthoven wrote, if you read Alan's writings, particularly the one he wrote for Holland, with the Stolte lectures, it has a high moral tone to it. These, this was not just a harsh economist beating up on doctors. There was actually, basically, he never wrote this graph, but there was an attempt to get this curve down and to buy, therefore, more kind acts. Thus, the rapidly rising cost of health care, the inexplicable geographic variation, the growing evidence that a good part of health care might be useless or possibly deleterious, like putting a pacemaker into someone who doesn't need it, uh, <clears throat> that created the demand among employers for externally managed care. And the word here is external, because that's what managed care means, that there would be interference in the doctor-patient relationship. And it was made possible by the recession of 88-92, because employees were worried about their jobs, and it was possible for employers to, to give employees insurance that limited their choice of doctor and of therapy. That couldn't be done except in a recession, and it was just a window uh, at which that could be achieved. So all this came together, these three factors, the research backing it up, plus the recession, uh, sometimes, you know, catastrophe theory for the doctors it was, when these things come together, bingo, stuff happens. And it did. Uh, managed care came to town. Now, I have to admit, uh, it did come on rough. These were cowboys, and they went and shot up the landscape, and nowhere worse than in California. Uh, so that has to be uh, admitted. They were not particularly uh, sweet. Now, it's sometimes useful to remember what this managed care, it has been so demagogued that it's useful to remember what was the theory that uh, it was actually all about. <clears throat> you had a family. The idea was you would have a family that would be endowed with a voucher. We now call it defined contribution. Uh, and might put in some of their own money, depending on their degree of fussiness. And they might be confronted with health plans. These would be, uh, as Steve Chartel has written books and articles, fully clinically integrated systems not only economically, not only administratively, but clinically integrated, Kaiser. Alan Antoine was dreaming of Kaiser. It was actually Paul Elwood who in 1973 wrote about this, and he dubbed the name Health Maintenance Organization, and the Summerses at Princeton 
who wrote in the Millbank Memorial of April 1972 a similar model, but not as well specked out. So <clears throat> managing care would happen within the plans that somebody here, a medical director, would give guidelines to the doctors and hospitals within the network. That's managed care. Managed competition was a commercial thing, was forcing these plans to compete fairly for enrollees. Managed care and managed competition, totally different things. Managed care is something a plans medical director does to the providers in the system. Managed competition is something employers or government does to health plans. Equity, social equity, would be sought here by the size of the voucher. If the voucher uh, covered more or less the premium, it could be said to be equitable. So this was the design. Managed care, a, f a French uh, friend, uh, Gérard Sondier, drew me this chart because I gave him Paris a talk, uh, Medicine in a Fishbowl. Uh, doctors in hospitals and patients would be in a statistical fishbowl, and these are the care managers, the medical directors of the plan, and they would see how they swim, and if they didn't swim according to guideline, the question is then what do you do? Now, I think, personally, what you should do is communicate gently, indirectly, appeal to their pride, use the professional norms theory to get these people come in line. But instead what was done, certainly on the East Coast, you went in there with a little net and flipped them out like dead fish and say you're dead. Where the, that's where the word network actually came from. <laughs> and Alan Antoven has always said, on the East, West Coast we manage care, on the East Coast you do this. I don't know how true that is, Jack, but nevertheless, uh, I think we went far too aggressively after the doctors in ways that they would get notices, your contract has been canceled without cause. And I think that's no way to treat doctors. So that was a big uh, mistake. If you lay this out, the idea was, of course, we would have a choice of more than two plans, including a traditional fee-for-service plan, some PPOs, some HMOs. They would give bid premiums to us. These premiums would be averaged by a farmer's market, and the government or the employer would give us a fixed contribution toward these premiums, perhaps high enough to cover these two fully, and then if these were more expensive, you'd have to pay out of pocket. That is managed care, managed competition, as Enthoven, Elwood, and people like Harold, you wrote about it, thought about it. Now, the interesting thing, this design is worth remembering and burning into your brain because this, oh, there was going to be an information on each plan you would know uh, how satisfied patients were with the plans administration, how, uh, how many people disenrolled, uh, and other metrics. And for the, each provider within the network, we would know uh, clinical outcomes, patient satisfaction, epidemiological outcomes like immunization rates, uh, patient satisfaction, background of the doctors, and other stuff. That exists somewhat in the buyer's group. Is it what is called the, what is that thing called? The business group? They have uh, at least approximations to this. But that is about the only place where you can find this. And this design fits the Jackson Hole model, which is really Enthoven's model. Uh, it fits the Clinton plan. That's the core of the Clinton plan. There was a lot of bells and whistles that were a nuisance, but the core was what I showed you. And it fits the Bro Frist 
Bush Medicare reform plan. The interesting thing is they're all the same. If you really want to be naughty among Republicans, first of all, make, make them wax mushy about bro frisk, which is what President Bush supports. Draw it out and say, oh, by the way, that's the Clinton plan. Uh, <clears throat> you will lose them, but it's true. That's what it was. Now, this was not without success. These are premium increases of sponsored health plans, uh, <clears throat> uh, Mercer Foster Higgins, and they were cited by someone, uh, but I trust him. So these were the actual numbers. It, the premiums rose 18% in 1988, and it went down and became negative. These are nationwide data, uh, and it was negative. So to argue managed care didn't work is ridiculous. It did what it was asked to do, shoot up the docks, get us discounts, and get these premiums down. In terms of Bob Reichauer's chart, that was the forecast. In the year 2000, we spent 13.1%. In numbers, this was 1.673 trillion, and this was about 1.244 trillion or something. The difference is about 365 billion. Now, here's an interesting thing. If I did a survey in this room and say, where did this money go? If you have an MD degree, you would say it went to the pockets of insurance executives uh, and other stock options. If you are an economist, you say this went into the paycheck of workers because we believe premiums paid by the employer are part of compensation, and if you put less money there, you put more in the take-home package. So we believe managed care did wonderful things for employees, but they didn't know this because they thought the employer pocketed the money, and it's because labor economists have never managed to get this message through. And I didn't either. I remember Alan Kruger and I wrote a paper. No one ever reads this stuff. Uh, but we firmly believe this. And here's the expert, David Card, who can tell you if it's true. Is it true? Probably. Oh, well, that's very hedged. Uh, but at least, sort of, it's like the Immaculate Conception. We economists believe this. Uh, and there's some empirical evidence uh, for it. Okay, now, uh, this is what happened since. In, uh, it went up uh, 6.1 nationwide. Uh, these are health plans, 15% uh, premium increases. And just today's uh, San Francisco Chronicle has this article. I think Nat Jones was kind enough to scan this in here. So you see it's an up-to-date talk. Uh, <clears throat> But 25% premium increases, and CalPERS was internationally known as the most prudent buyer of health insurance in the world. That's what CalPERS' reputation was. So that is where we are uh, on this. Now, if you look at the projected growth as we have it in health affairs, the most recent, actually I got this from the, you know, it's no longer called HICFA. This is actually weird. The Bush administration came in and said, we have to have a health policy. Every president does. And they said, but we have no money. And they said, well, let's change the name of HICVA. <laughs> so that's what they did. So they had this contest. I kid you not. I don't know, Harold, if you submitted a name. The new name for HICVA. And the winner was a, a terrible name, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, abbreviated CMS. So they dropped one M. And everyone wonders, which is it? They don't care about it <laughs> anymore. I had submitted what I thought was a very soothing, mellow name. It was called Senior Health Insurance Trust. 
And I, that didn't uh, at all uh, make it. Now, <clears throat> isn't that a nice name? I mean, it was for seniors. It had to do with trust and stuff. Uh, <clears throat> now, in terms of per capita spending, we now, in 2000, spend 5300 per American. That'll be 10000 in nominal dollars, or 7800 in uh, uh, constant dollars. Although I would add here that after you take that off, we'll now spend, we'll be spending 17% of the GDP on health. But the non-health GDP, after you take that off the top, per capita in real dollars, will still grow at one point, something like 2% per year from here to there. So it doesn't mean we don't have all the other stuff. We can have a chicken and video game in every pot uh, and be okay. The take-home message for policy wonks is this. Policy analysis is not policy implementation. The person who invented the wheel was smart. The person who invented the other three was the genius. And that is always, these designs are very, very elegant, and I do love that design that I showed you. But actually making that work is the really hard work, and that didn't uh, come down. Why did managed care fail? I think the prime cause, and David would probably agree, was the tight labor market that if you, uh, if you tie health insurance, if you make it part of labor compensation, and then you have a tight labor market, you can't expect to use that vehicle to do nasty things to employees. So, because very quickly, in 95, employees says, we don't want to have a limited choice of doctor. We don't want a gatekeeper. We don't want generics. We want choice. And, in, and increasingly, there was HMO, point of service, then preferred provider organization. And then in the end, people says, let's put every doctor in every network. So then in CalPERS, for example, they will um, not work with HealthNet or what was the other one, Pacific Care. But in fact, it doesn't matter a lot. Most patients' doctor is in both the ones they still have. You see they're open networks. So this one, it's a recession model. Jackson Hole model of managed care, which does nasty things to employees, at least in their mind, is a recession model, won't work. So that was uh, one particular. What really came down is open networks. Everyone was in everyone's networks, and the health plans lost economic leverage. They could no longer fire doctors. Many doctors simply now just don't work with them at all, Jack just told me, and it's on the East Coast as well. Hospitals say, take a walk. And that works. So that was one reason. The other one is the supply side was very loose. At the time uh, managed care came in, we had built too many hospitals. We had imported doctors. We trained doctors. They were hospitals you in any town USA looked like this. <laughs> this was actually a one hospital town in New England. The hospital was so big, no matter where you go, you wind up in it. Uh, this is nuts, and, and that's what we did. But for managed care, this was cool because with excess capacity, you could scare them and buy below full cost. You could actually get discounts. And so that was important to have excess capacity, but one should have predicted this would eventually be reduced as the beds were built down. And now in many parts of the country, we have a shortage of beds. That's why the emergency rooms are overflowing. And if we had any bioterrorist attack, we're in deep doodle. We're in tent city. So that was not, in the end, 
such a smart idea. I think empty beds, not staffed, are dirt cheap. We should have never built them down. Uh, <clears throat> the third was, we Americans, uh, when we talk about competition, we don't really mean it. Uh, <clears throat> I think uh, <clears throat> what happened is we allowed hospitals to get together and form near-local monopolies. Is it possible in Northern California to write an insurance contract without Sutter Health in it? Is it possible without Catholic, uh, what is it, Health West? Can you? I don't think so. So the Justice Department says, these poor hospitals, we've got to allow them to monopolize, and that was done. And it wasn't, that was under Clinton. That was considered enlightened policy. So that doesn't work. Uh, when Americans wax mushy about the virtue of price competitive market, they're like drunken lovers at a bar. Big talk, that's all. Uh, <clears throat> when the normal effects of price competition stared Americans in the face, especially in California, people were aghast that medical groups could go bankrupt. I was amazing that it was technically feasible that they could go, because the reason they could is doctors were salaried. Then, of course, I thought the doctors would eat it. But no, they took a salary and the organization went bankrupt. But nevertheless, we said that's not tolerable. And then, of course, the Justice Department thought hospitals shouldn't be subjected to the brutality either. So in some way, whenever there is a real com price competitive assault on the health system to take down capacity, the community screams, the doctors scream, the Justice Department caves, and we will allow the system to re-monopolize. So the system is now substantially re-monopolized. And of course, in, in California, you had former Congressman Campbell, a Republican, yes, a Republican, who wanted to unionize doctors so that the monopolization would be complete. So how can you run managed competition when you monopolize the supply side? This is really strange when you uh, think about it. So much for price competitive markets. So I don't think we'll uh, tolerate. And then, let's be honest, these guys were klutzes, the, uh, the HMOs. They came in like a bunch of cowboys chasing patients out of the hospital. That became a national American obsession, average length of stay. They'd sit at a bar, brag about how short their average length of stay was. Some guys said, want to have it minus one. Uh, just couldn't figure out how to get there. Here's, I'm, I'm not kidding. Look at this. This was Kaiser. Uh, it said, uh, I'll blow this up, this red thing. It says, protocols like Kaiser's can provide good follow-up care for mothers after one day after a normal delivery for less than one to 2,000 for each additional day in the hospital. This is Milliman Robertson doing the guideline. Now, I call myself a rural economist, a, a little country economist from rural New Jersey. I don't know these fancy things about what goes on in hospitals, but I did witness three births in our family, and I do know what goes on. So uh, I'm not surprised mothers were upset. In fact, I wrote this little paper, how much jello can a mother eat? Because I asked myself, all mothers do on the second day is eat jello and feed the baby. And they said they would save $2,000. That's one hell of a lot of jello. I mean, think about it, right? So how could this be? And when you think that these were vertical, adult, mature men doing this, you've got to ask yourself, couldn't you have had a two-part tariff for the first day, 1500 and for the second day, you charge hotel rates? Why did that elude the managers 
of managed care. That's really tragic because for 150 bucks, maybe if you had to go on a trip and it was not convenient to have uh, your wife at home, or that happened once to me, uh, it was actually convenient to buy an extra day. Or if the mother, it was after all supposed to be a consumer revolution. Mothers are consumers. Even if clinically it was safe to discharge, if she wanted to stay, couldn't you be civil about it? And that's why I say efficiency and civility in man. Sometimes they go hand in hand. So that was sad that they did this. So all of these things together, but the labor market was, I think, the Achilles heel. So we're now shifting into consumerism. That's the latest thing. The, the options we now face as a nation is this. We can go to the pre-1990 order. I think for a while, yes, but not for long. We could go the uh, publicly regulated, more or less egalitarian model with upstream capacity constraints, like in Canada or in England or Germany or Japan, where you just simply don't put the MRI machines there, and then you know they can't get used. Uh, or you can do the Enthoven thing, publicly regulated, more or less egalitarian, maternalistic managed care a la Clinton or Enthoven, same thing. Uh, that is one option. Or you can say we can have a multi-tiered system with explicit rationing by income class. And I believe we will choose this option. And Jamie Robertson had this paper in Health Affairs. I think we all agree that's where we're going to go. Uh, and the way this gets done is, the interesting thing is, in the 90s, the percent of the health bill paid out of pockets actually fell. We covered the, the people more and more. It didn't rise. Absolutely, the dollars may have increased, but the percent fell. But if you survey employers now, what are you going to do with these premium increases? Uh, most of them increase employees' share of the premium, cost-sharing at point of service, don't cover families anymore, limit, you know, make more benefits elective so they're not in the basic package. It's all, in plain English, shift costs to the employee. And there are two models. One is what I call the adult model of de defined contribution. Xerox tried this, where you cash out. You give the employee 5,000 bucks, say, that's what we spend on you. Go to eHealth on the web, buy your own insurance. Uh, this is harsh. This was in the Wall Street Journal just a couple of days ago. One insurer's tactic, you get sick, rates go up. Here was a, a lady who had breast cancer. Premiums began to rise from 400 a month to 1800 a month. She asked why, and it was explained to her that uh, uh, Mrs. Wall says, an executive says, because of your dread disease. And the question is, is that what we want in America? But if you go the individual route, there is no more risk pooler. Who will pull the risk? That's the Achilles heel. Either we will do this, or we will not accept this route. But risk pooling uh, cannot be done by eHealth. Not for as far as I know. So that is why that doesn't work. So I think we will have the teenage model, which is, after all, the employer still does the risk pooling, still does all the coddling, but uh, we will have reference pricing with it. The insurance market would look like this. Uh, here you have all the products. The sum is the premiums charged by these plans. The employer will give you 120 per member per month, regardless of what you choose. And if you choose fee-for-service, you eat the whole difference. 
That is, of course, Clinton. That is Alan Antoven. And that is Bro Frist. But employers never did this, and I think they will do that now. The other thing they'll do is reference prices in the market for hospital care. This starts in California, where if you go to one hospital, they, they pay the whole thing. If you go to Cedars-Sinai, you pay the whole difference out of pocket. Uh, they'll rate it by cost or quality, and they'll do it for physicians uh, sooner or later as well. And the same will done, be done to drugs. Here's how that works. Drugs in the same therapeutic class, they will be grouped. The insurer says, I'll pay you a reference price for drug B. I cover that fully. And if you want drug G, because it has fewer side effects, you're welcome to it. You pay the whole difference out of pocket. That is, I think, the mechanisms by which these things will get done in the next uh, few years. Uh, in a nutshell, having thrown the towel in the towel on cost control, employers will now delegate the task of disciplining healthcare to the individual consumer, formerly known as patient, or also known as sick human being. And that's why I, unlike Jamie, don't think this is going to be such a cool idea. It's okay for simple stuff like eyeglasses. It's not okay when you have a heart bypass uh, and uh, frightened and worried. I don't think Americans will like this. Ultimately, this could descend into rationing healthcare severely by ability to pay mazel tov. That's what you get for bashing managed care. I think it was not a good thing to get rid of managed care uh, as we did. We should have re-reformed it rather than gotten rid of it. Now, in conclusion, there are some policy. We have the uninsured, and we talked this morning about this problem of... Uh, Merging, uh, what was that uh, nice talk we had? Were you convergence? Well, this is what happened to salaries in America. This is David Elwood's slide. He emailed it to me. Uh, from 60 to 75, when the economy boomed, all boats rose when the flood came. But since then, the lower classes have, have sunk. It turned around a little bit in the late 90s, but probably will go down again. And the, the people with money or human capital, did very well. So we are no longer a middle-class nation. We're really spreading out. And for health care, what it'll cost in the year 2010, these people here have to step up to the cashier's window for these people in a bigger way than we do now, or these people will be out to lunch. That's the moral issue before us. And this chart explains why during the 90s, the number of uninsured went from 37 to 44 million. Simply, the lowest incomes couldn't tolerate the premium, even in a tight labor market. I think it would cost $100 billion per year to fix this problem. Uh, that would not be what the added health spending, that's what the feds would have to pay. The added health spending would be more like 60, 40 to 50 billion, because the uninsured already do get a lot of care with their own money or charity care. So we just have to top it off. Uh, a policy, the way we need to do it is roll up Medicare, you call it Medi-Cal, uh, S-chip for the children, and then tax credits for people higher. That's the only politically feasible thing. But I don't think we'll do it. And the reason why I don't think we'll do it, because we blew the money. We literally blew the money last year. Here is... These are actually Reichauer's numbers. Uh, the total surplus 
was set to be 5.6 trillion for the next decade. That's when Bush took office. That shrank by before September 11 to 3.3 billion and uh, 1.6 trillion now. But that includes Social Security. These are the Social Security surpluses which stay pretty steady through this period. If you take Social Security out of this budget, what we had, we only had 3.1 trillion, which already had shrunk to 800 billion, and now will be 700 negative. We're already in deficit. You see, what the politicians tell you is the green line, but that means we're using Social Security money to pay ammunition for Afghanistan. I don't think that was supposed to be the deal, but that is what we're doing. So we blew it. We literally blew it. Where did most of the money go? Well, uh, the bulk of it, almost half of it, was to pay for the tax cut. Uh, economic factors, sluggish economy, 22%. Spending increases, 19 Technically, these are actuarial mistakes, 15% and other. But we gave ourselves a tax cut when we had the chance uh, to move. So this is my, I tell my students, government's budget is the medium through which a nation tells God about the moral trade-offs it is willing to make. And last year, we spoke loud and clearly to God, and we said, if it's a choice between tax cut or being our brothers and sisters keepers, we'll take the tax cut. And you know, I'm an immigrant. I shouldn't judge uh, these morals. I'm not as close to God as President Bush. Uh, I'm not even a Christian. But nevertheless, uh, I think this is a moral statement that we made, and there we are, uh, and we are uh, stuck with it. There's another little nasty thing, I think, coming, with this genomic uh, uh, revolution. Think of the traditional drug model. You had a drug that was given to patients who benefited from it, who don't, and those who hurt. And all of them pay for the R&D of that drug. It is a very strange form of socialism. These are called blockbuster drugs. But with genomics and genotyping, we will be able to identify which patients benefit from a drug or not. And therefore, all of the drugs will have to be paid for by only those patients who benefit. Some of these drugs will become orphan drugs. And the real question is, have we thought about financing this when we can't spread it so far? And depending on who these people are, will we pay for this? So I think the pharmaceutical industry is going to block it. They like blockbuster drug. They will actually sabotage genotyping. They, they prefer a model where drugs are given to people who don't benefit from it for obvious reasons. The markets are bigger. It seems inevitable that eventually the industry will be reorganized around these diseases. And then the question is, uh, we're willing to pay for the R&D. Who pays for this very sick people who need this drug and benefit from it, but they would have to pay the whole R&D? I don't think we thought this through. There's more. The problem also will be how to finance healthcare equitably across society, because if you actually think about it, genotyping will take away the veil of ignorance, Rawls' veil of ignorance, where right now I don't know what genes I carry that may rain all terrible uh, possible stuff on me, so therefore I want the works, NIH and so on. But if I know I'm healthy, chronically healthy, then I might not be so willing to be the uh, brother, the keeper of my chronically ill fellow citizen. So I think that's a major challenge for politicians is to keep the notion of the Judeo-Christian 
social contract alive in the face of uh, genetics. Not so easy. I haven't thought through it. I just asked the question. That's why you have schools of public policy to solve this problem. But that is an interesting uh, issue. So I will end with my uh, Chinese uh, style. I happen to know a famous Chinese philosopher who embodies uh, 4,000 years of Chinese wisdom. This is Xi. Uh, actually, Zhang Zongmei, some of you know them. David, you know her. She uh, sold you a house, didn't she? This is my wife, and she wears a Russian tank commander's uniform she bought in Berlin. And the kids were asking, Mama, why do you buy something this ridiculous? And she says, your dad is German-born, and I know nothing so scares the hell out of a German than a Russian tank commander. <laughs> so, and, and it works, <laughs> this thing. But she has this message for healthcare people. We are in a crisis, no doubt, but the Chinese use the word Wei Ji for crisis. I'm probably not saying this right. Where this character means danger, and that means opportunity. There's a lot of things we can do right, having gone through the past, learned from our mistake. And that is why it's interesting to teach at schools of public health, because our students, you do, I do, they have to carry this forward. They will have to study our mistakes. I showed you our mistakes. And the next generation has to take over and straighten out the mess we passed to you. But there's lots of work and lots of opportunities. Thank you very much.